Hi, I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Sarah. We're two English teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture. Welcome to Lit. Welcome back, Alicia. It is time for us to do our Halloween episode. And it's exciting because it's October and we always try to go do a throwback of some kind for Halloween. And my dogs have decided to join us apparently for this particular episode. So welcome, guys. <laughs> Enjoy both of them barking at some spook outside, I'm sure. Um, we decided this year after one year we did Hocus Pocus and another year we did Zombieland. And this year we are going to do a throwback to Sleepy Hollow, the 1999 version of the film, because it's the one we used when we taught American literature together and we talked about American Gothic and we went and we went back and did some Washington Irving and we did the devil and Tom Walker and we worked our way all the way up to modern Gothic literature. And we even tried to bring in a tiny bit of Stephen King just to kind of show how we got from point A to point B in American literature. And so here we are, we're going to talk some sleepy hollow, some headless horsemen and all the things that go with the lopping off of heads. <laughs> and before we go any further, I think, both we need to acknowledge we know that at this point in our world Johnny Depp has is a problematic character we have lots of mixed feelings in the world of media surrounding Johnny Depp we are going to just talk about the film we are not here to make any claims or big opinion statements about someone's career but we do acknowledge Johnny Depp is in this film and then we're just gonna move on so with that in mind before we go any further this was i think sarah and i both were huge fans of before it was cool <laughs> how do you bring in or analyze hey this was early lit thinking how do you analyze cinema as a literary text and that's some of what we tried to do by juxtaposing the original washington irving text with the 1999 sleepy hollow film uh, there is one other film adaptation from 1949 that you can watch on Disney if you want to. It's very different from the 1999 version. This is full on a Tim Burton dreamscape in a lot of ways. You see a lot of his black, white, and red. You see his Johnny Depp. You see a lot of those things that are at the forefront of Tim Burton films. But I want to take us even further back. And I want to talk about the origins of Halloween. So that's going to be kind of our lens that we're going to look at Sleepy Hollow today. Instead of just talking about a creative adaptation, we can do that a million times here at Lit Think. What I want us to do instead is let's think about the origins of the actual celebration of Halloween and how that seeps into arguably any traditional Halloween story in some good or bad ways. We're actually going to be a little critical of how Sleepy Hollow, interestingly, for it being a historical text, is not completely historically accurate. Washington Irving, what were you doing? Uh, so <laughs> to start us out, let's just talk about Sarah, when you hear the word tradition, or if we're talking about Halloween traditions, I know we have a dictionary definition we could turn to, but when you hear the word tradition, what comes to mind for you? Um, first in my head, I'm singing tradition from Fiddler on the Roof every time. <laughs> and I know it has nothing to do with Halloween, <laughs> but that's the very first thing that pops into my head. Um, accurate. <laughs> the traditions are just things that you do 
year after year after year. You carry those things on because they have significant meaning to you, either your family or your faith tradition, or even culturally in whatever area that you live in. And traditions are hard to let go of because they become so much a part of who we are in a lot of different ways. Like our family for years, we had the tradition of going camping for Thanksgiving because we lived in Texas and it was something that we held on very dearly. We, we wanted to spend every Thanksgiving out camping and not worrying about the house and family coming over and, and all of that, that we normally associate with Thanksgiving. And so that that's tradition. Like that is something that mm-hmm. is near and dear that you keep doing. And sometimes you do it even when you don't know why it's because it's always mm-hmm. been done that way. So I hear kind of to break down that definition. I hear that tradition has to involve community. It has to be time honored and it has to have some sort of ritual attached to it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Arguably, Halloween, as we know it now, it comes from the tradition of All Hallows' Eve. It's supposed to be before All Saints' Day, which is a church, Christian church-based holiday. But it actually, the traditions around Halloween, the things that we do around Halloween, date even further back to a 2,000-year-old Celtic celebration, which was just meant to be a basic, hey, fall is over, winter is coming, Harvest Festival, here we go. They actually believed, pagan Celtic individuals believed that before the church latched onto this and said, let's monetize it, (laughs) the Celtic church believed, the Celtic pagans, excuse me, believed that there was a day that was called uh, Samhain. It's not spelled like that at all, but they believed there was a day when the veil between the mortal and immortal world was thin. And therefore, we humans had to protect ourselves from evil spirits. You've probably heard some version of this around Halloween. But interestingly, the things that we're going to argue are in almost any traditional Halloween story. Uh, This idea of harvesting or kind of transition. This idea of disguises for the sake of safety or identity, which we're going to look at in Sleepy Hollow as well today. Um, Trick-or-treating itself is based off of this idea of you had to set offerings before demons to keep your home safe. So, Hey, when children come dressed up as demons to your door and say trick or treat, well, you don't know if they're actually a demon or if they're just a small child. So you better give them an offering anyway. Um, But I think one of the other just really interesting things as we're talking about the timeline, and this is going to be my one critical note before Sarah really delves into, excuse me, some of those Halloween ideas in the film Sleepy Hollow is carving of pumpkins. We get it here in America from Irish immigrants who came here in droves around 1850 due to the Great Famine in Ireland. Before that, it was very common to carve faces into turnips in Ireland to ward off evil spirits. Random, I know. And then uh, these Irish individuals, they came to America and said, hey, gourds are way cooler. And they started doing it in pumpkins. Okay, so... That was in the 1850s. The original Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving was published in 1820. This is before Irish immigrants normalized pumpkins being carved into jack-o'-lanterns. And on top of that, the story of Sleepy Hollow is supposed to be based on the 1790s, 
which is way, way before Halloween was normalized in America, let alone that jack-o'-lanterns would have existed at all. And yet, one of the big ideas that we see with the Headless Horseman is that the fake head he ends up using is a jack-o'-lantern. It's a carved pumpkin. So, Washington Irving, he did travel throughout Europe. Maybe he saw something beyond America, but I call BS. What are we doing here, Washington? I have questions. <laughs> I don't think you're going to get uh, those questions answered. <laughs> uh, you are you are correct. It's fair. Unless he's Rip Van Winkling somewhere up in the mountains, but hey. No, no, he's not. Well, and I think it's fascinating to look back at the original story because that's what we did when we taught this. We taught the original story and then we watched Sleepy Hollows. We did a comparative analysis of the two. So we were lit thinking the movie in relation to the story as this modern adaptation, although it's not a modern film. Um, but because we've seen the Sleepy Hollow myth told and retold and retold in so many different ways. I mean, yes, we get the Sleepy Hollow movie with Tim Burton, which is like two true versions that have been films that have stayed as true to the story as they could, right? But cartoons have done Sleepy Hollow the Headless Horseman. Um, the, we've had this Headless Horseman. Disney has done at least two or three different television series that have had some kind of version of the Headless Horseman. Um, so we see, keep seeing we the do, story. I mean, back. any of these. Yes. Yep. yep. Because it's such an easy story. Again, going back to that whole concept of disguise, like you talk to Scooby-Doo, like the Headless Horseman's a great disguise. That's a great way to cover up whatever nefarious things you might be doing, right? And if the Headless Horseman is walking around with a pumpkin as a head, you can use that as a disguise easily in, in some way, whatever you're trying to get away with. Um, and so we, we see that as something that keeps coming up over and over and over again. Um, I, I think... It's interesting to look at Irving just as a writer because some of his Gothic literature pieces, which is really early American Gothic with not just Sleepy Hollow, but also The Devil and Tom Walker, just this discussion of the other side, what's happening on the other Mm -hmm. side and Mm -hmm. humans coming into contact with that. And then what happens when they come into contact with that, which we see way more in the Sleepy Hollow film than we even see in in the short Mm -hmm. story. It's really a novella when you look at the length of the novella, but you see it way more in yep. the movie than you even see it in the short story. Mm-hmm. Well, and this idea of displacement, I think you see that as well. I mean, Ichabod Crane is supposed to be this outsider coming into this established superstitious town, both in the film and in the original text. I even think Rip Van Winkle, which is also from this um, series of essays and short stories that was published, I've referenced it a few times. But that's another one where this man falls asleep for, you know, hundreds of years and comes back and he's displaced because of how long he was asleep. So um, I just think there's a really interesting idea that I think is also established in the film, not only displacement and kind of this outsider idea, but then as we merge these ideas of, I mean, we're talking about that veil between the mortal and immortal worlds, Sleepy Hollow is a story that veil becomes thin between fact and fiction. What is real, what is not real, what is natural, what is supernatural. And then Ichabod Crane in the film, as a policeman who's also a scientist, he really struggles with that. There has to be a logical explanation for these 
magical happenings in this small town. Well, and the people in the town keep telling him over and over again. They're like, we know who it is. It's the Hessian. Like, we know who's coming after everybody. It's this guy who's been dead for years and years and years. And he's just a headless horseman and he's coming after us. And Ichabod's like, that's not possible. That's not a thing that happens because that's what normal people would say. That is not a thing that happens. But I think it's interesting when you bring out this whole concept of the outsider because that's part of tradition too, right? Tradition doesn't like outsiders. Tradition doesn't like an outsider coming in and saying the way you're doing things is wrong or the way you think is wrong or the way that everybody's operating within this system doesn't work. When the reality is it works really well for the people of Sleepy Hollow. It works quite well for them until someone gets mad and then someone decides to use the Hessian to get revenge on everyone else. And the key is figuring out who's controlling the Hessian. Like that's what they need to figure out. But Ichabod is so stuck on the crimes must be directly committed by a single person that he can't see the supernatural. He can't see that the headless horseman is really in many ways a disguise for the person who's committing the actual murders for the person who is pulling the puppet strings. And saying this is what needs can to we happen. Talk, by the way, about can we talk by the way about the actor who plays our beloved Hessian in the film? Oh, yes, we just it's Christopher Walken. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and here's what's so crazy about it being Christopher Walken. He doesn't have a single line. Like he I know. <laughs> is he's so he's scary and he is threatening, and yet he never says a word. He just is there, but it's because he just has, as an actor, has the ability to use his body language and to use facial expressions to really sell a role that you're like, man, he really has a major role in this, even though he never says anything. He, it, but because nope. of the way he carries himself, it he tells his own story in the way he carries himself. Well, and coming back to your, your point about tradition, the story of Sleepy Hollow is supposed to be based in the 1790s in America. America was still a very, very young country at that point. And yet part of why the town of Sleepy Hollow is so superstitious is because they openly say we were a battleground in the Revolutionary War. So they've just normalized spirits of those soldiers. I mean, our Hessian is supposed to have been a soldier for hire from the Revolutionary War. So there's just kind of this really interesting underlying for ultimately all of these people, it's a Dutch town. They still have a lot more connection to Europe, arguably in the traditions across the ocean than they have established in their own small town. There may be like one generation in establishing their community in, in America, but it's enough that that's already, it's part of their society. Already Ichabod can be an outsider because no, this is the way we do things here. Yeah. And I think people so frequently forget this, how young of a country we were in the early 1800s and how violent our history. Like, yes, we talk about how tense things are right now in 2020s in, in the 2020s and how we're having all of these questions about democracy and all of that. But my goodness, the first 75 years of American history were really bloody and they were really tense 
and they were very uncertain and there was so much because you have the revolutionary war and then you have having to hash everything out to start a whole new constitution so you have the continental congress and you have the constitution and then in 19 or in 1861 you have a four-year civil war that nearly destroys the entire country and tears the country apart and so yeah there are ghosts everywhere in the eastern half of the united states and then you add another lay on top of that and you realize that you have the forcing out of indigenous tribes from the very beginning and then you have slavery and there are so many ghosts and bodies that are that this foundation of the country has been built on and irving is hinting at that even though he's not really even going as deep as talking about the expulsion of of indigenous Mm -hmm. tribes and even though he's not talking about slavery there's an undercurrent in his writing where you Mm -hmm. see just the building of a country on a dark dark past and i think you even see that a little Mm -hmm. bit more in the devil and tom walker but we see this dark past and then you see that in the movie sleepy hollow tim burton because this is what tim burton does right he builds this idea of this revenge plot by lady van tassel who wants to get revenge for her own family suffering during the revolutionary war and so she's trying to get her own revenge here but if you want to talk about the building of her empire her personal empire on bodies of all the heads of all these people that have been stolen by the headless horsemen are in this tree that she then controls because she holds the skull of the Hessian. She controls him because she has his head. And, you know, the heads are, I still don't really know. Are the heads an offering to her or are they an offering to himself? Like, I'm not like, but Mm. someone is being offered something with these heads. These heads are an offering Mm -hmm. of some kind as she controls him with his skull. And until he gets his skull back. Yeah. So I'm thinking like she made the deal with the devil. Right. But then I guess I always understood that the headless horseman, he's obsessed with chopping off other people's heads because he's trying to find his head again or a head that would be an alternate fit. And so he's collecting heads. because He's like, "Mm, no, that one doesn't work. Mm, No, that one doesn't work. I mean, well, and I think the the offering for the offering to him then becomes when um when ichabod is able to get the skull and give him back his skull when ichabod and katrina are able to gather the skull and give it back to him finally he's able to come to peace because that offering gives him Mm -hmm. peace that he can Mm -hmm. now move on with his life or his afterlife move on with his afterlife (laughs) and and i guess in a way so I think we've definitely talked about tradition. We've definitely talked about this idea of offering, right? The heads are an interesting offering, uh, whatever role exactly they play. But I mean, we are told that, you know, our, our brain is our, a huge part of our whole concept of thinking. So if someone else is literally holding your brain and turning which way your head can go and telling your head what it can do, your body is forced to follow along. That's how our nervous system works. So there's kind of an interesting layer of that there. But I'm curious, I mean, you brought up Lady Von Tassel. You would tell me a little bit more about how disguises or just kind of like multiple identities are a huge part of this story, um, especially. I think she fits. Yeah, I think she fits the best in with disguise out of all of them. 
because she is disguising herself as a woman of means and as a woman who fits into proper society when really she grew up impoverished. She's the reason why the Hessian got his head lopped off in the first place because she broke the stick that let the soldiers know where he was. So that's why he got killed mm-hmm. in the first place. So not only does she have his skull, she's and she controls him and has controlled him since childhood. She also is the reason why he lost his head. But she's been able to use this position of wealth and this position of privilege in order to hide her true ambitions. Um, And it takes a while for those to be discovered. And it isn't until she's finally discovered by Katrina that the veil starts to be pulled away. But no one suspects her. No one suspects that she could possibly be the one that is guilty of killing all of these people. And she's also hiding behind the fact that she's a woman and she's killing all these people too, right? Like that also is a part of it as well. Um, So I think that that fits in the disguises. And if we want to go back to that fourth element of Halloween, the harvest, the biggest element of harvest is just the timing of this because the film in typical Burton-esque format is it's dark. It's a lot of grays and blacks and reds but it's taking place at the tail end of fall when the leaves have fallen from the trees when the fields have been harvested and all and what we see are stalks of hay and corn stalks and hay bales and the fields themselves are essentially cleared and there's nothing left on the trees so we haven't hit winter yet we know it's cold because of the way everybody's acting Uh, we know it's cold but we also know that the harvest has taken place and we're waiting for rebirth. We're waiting for a renewal and that renewal and rebirth is months away. And so this becomes the stark spare transition from fall to winter where they have to solve this problem before they're all buried under snow. Well, and right. A huge part of harvest is we we take what life we created through spring and summer, we are storing it. Uh, we aren't killing anymore. We're like, we are preparing for mm. future death. And yet, so that's kind of like the, the, the Halloweeny part is wait, there there's death happening that we didn't plan for. Uh, there's bodies being harvested or lives being harvested, living things being harvested ooh, that we didn't plan for. So how do we, how do we address all of that? I think another interesting thing to think about with Lady Von Tessel, so, you know, her twin sister is a really interesting red herring that we see at some point in the film. And there is just, I'm looking through a historical lens, the Salem witch trials happened in 1692 in American history. So Irving is basing his story of Sleepy Hollow about a hundred years after the fact that America is already very much proven that they are afraid of the supernatural. And it's going to be another hundred years before we start to celebrate that supernatural through a national holiday like Halloween. Fall festivals were normal, but this idea of bringing in the supernatural, inviting it to the table as part of that, as you're saying, that juxtaposition between death and life that is ultimately autumn, that, that wasn't quite there yet because we're too afraid of it still. And that's Lady Von Tassel also part of why no one's going to question her is because they don't want to even think that those things exist, right? 
Right. Well, and it would take another hundred years and after he wrote it for it to kind of get a more cartoonish and lighthearted element to it. Because even when Halloween started to become a celebration and a, and a holiday, you know, trick or treating had a, there's a reason why it's called trick or treating. <laughs> like the tree, the trick was not pleasant. I, I always think back to, and I, I know this is an oldie, but I always think back to something like meet me in St. Louis and in the movie, when they mm-hmm. celebrate Halloween and meet me in St. Louis, it is, they are definitely going to trick people and they're going to do terrible things. Mm-hmm. And Trudy gets hurt <laughs> because she mm-hmm. gets trampled because they're in the middle of doing some pretty heinous things for little kids. Like for these kids that are getting in trouble, they're not looking for candy. They're looking for trouble. And it took a long time to get to a point where it was really just, let's have a a fall festival that's fun and people are wearing costumes. And even when we bring in the scary and the grotesque, it's done in fun, not done with the intent to frighten at least. Mm. I mean, yes, we still do haunted houses and stuff like that, but we have not think about the fact that right by us at Connor Prairie, you know, here we are in Indianapolis and Connor Prairie does a, a headless horseman festival every year, but the intent is not as, a haunted house that's meant to scare the wits out of small children. Yes, it has a frightening element to it, but there's also a festival that goes Mm -hmm. with it. There's fun, there's Mm -hmm. cider, there's apples, there's candy, there's other things that go with it too. And in the early 1800s, we didn't have that yet. And you have Washington Irving who's really taking on a new kind of tradition that is years away from becoming a lighthearted tradition. It's a heavy, dark tradition that is still a country that's working its way through a lot of demons that's working its way through a lot of ghosts. And those ghosts are not going away anytime soon. Well, and everything you're saying about Irving, it reminds me as well about Faulkner. I mean, and everything like Faulkner believed about how, I mean, ultimately that the American South was, damned because of its relation to um, slavery and just all the ways that we assimilated other cultures, traditions, other cultures, individuals in the name of saying, I mean, even for this town, here's the cream that rises to the top. Either these are the people that have the money or the land or whatever. And so they're going to be our spokespeople. And so, I mean, there's a, socioeconomic element of this film as Lady Von Tassel is saying the only way that I could claim power as a woman was to marry and then to kill <laughs> that those are her only options yeah, right but it, it's a it's a dark reality of this time period um as we think about American culture at this time yeah but who Ooh. knew that Halloween stuff could be so deep? I did. But there <laughs> are <laughs> people who don't realize that, you know, if you really dig into historical holidays, there's a lot in the way we have written about them and infused our, them into our literature. There's just a lot more going on than I think people really truly realize. Well, and let's clarify, too, I think one of the reasons why we've done Hocus Pocus and Zombieland in the past, it doesn't have to be over-the-top gore-terrifying for these elements to exist. In fact, I think mm-hmm. often 
if you're just telling a slasher story, you're losing some of what's really fascinating about these traditions as we as we look at how they reflect on our history as a nation, on our culture today, on our breakdown of power, ultimately, which is a huge part of what we're ending kind of on in this discussion, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, Sleepy Hollow, if you haven't seen it, it, it's a fun film. There's definitely some darker elements. I think we used to have to have, what's PG-13, right? Like we had to have kids. Yeah, PG-13. So we usually, uh, yeah, we did. We, we told parents it. it was happening. <laughs> we, because I, it, it was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's I true. honestly think it's I true. can say that, that it was a, uh, there, there were different. The book banning is uh, a twenty twenty three expectations. Yet, so yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah very much. <sighs> Good golly. <sighs> what are some things that you're enjoying right now that are not okay? Hollow? So we, on our fall break, traveled up to Michigan, and we needed something to listen mm-hmm. to. And you had just told me that there was a new Percy Jackson book. And my daughter is going through the original Percy Jackson series because she got a renewed love for Greek mythology during her world history class. And so we listened to the very new Percy Jackson book, uh, The Chalice of the Gods by Rick Riordan. And it's fun. Like if you just want to have a fun return to the Percy Jackson story and to the characters and and get to see Grover and Annabeth and Percy as they're grown up and as he's discovering that his family is, is changing, but in good ways, that it was fun. We, we enjoyed it. Can I say it's the best young adult book ever written? Probably not. But if you're just looking for a good, fun, somewhat lighthearted read, it's, it's a good one. And it was also fun to listen to. I think it's also, it's a good audiobook for, for those who are traveling as we're getting into fall, late fall, and there's traveling coming up for people. Um, And then we went to see the movie, The Creator, which is a near future science fiction film that deals with AI, but deals with AI in a very different way. Because normally we think about like AI taking over and you get this whole Skynet Terminator, like the world's going to be destroyed by AI. And in this particular film instead of looking at the ai being the absolute enemy it's the question of how do we coexist with ai and what happens when people have cannot coexist with ai when the ai is just trying to fight for survival not for dominance and there's a big difference Mm. when it's just fighting for survival and not dominance and it just wants to live it just wants to coexist and it doesn't deal with, I mean, because it can't, right? We have no idea what all of this means. So it doesn't deal with the question of what happens once it's done just coexisting. But it just brought up some really interesting questions about um, what our fears are in terms of ourselves and our technology and our human faults in our design of technology mm. because a lot of the problems that are caused by the AI were actually problems caused by human engineering. <laughs> so in the movie that they were problems of human engineering and they weren't the AI's fault. It was the, the humans who had made the mistakes. Um, so at a time when I'm getting ready to teach, teach Frankenstein and bioethics, it, mm. it brought up some really interesting points that I'm sure I will probably bring up in the coming weeks as we look at the science in Shelley's novel. So excited about that. 
NPR has really been all over that creator movie. Uh, so I've heard lots and lots and lots of blips while driving around. They're like, oh my gosh, let's talk about the creator. Oh my gosh, the creator came up. <laughs> all right. Well, if NPR is into it, then it's doing something well, doing something right, uh, as far as maybe asking the same question through a different lens. And that's kind of what I'm hearing in your analysis of the film. Well, so I, for a book, when it comes to October, I purposefully picked up the book, The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches. I had seen it, it must've been a book talk or something where it first had been recommended to me. It was on some list and I was like, okay, this looks cute. And it, it's very much, it, it's the, it focuses mostly on the perspective of this world where witches exist, but they are afraid to be in community with each other because then people will find out that witches exist. So, um, oh my goodness, I'm going to forget. Mika Moon is our main character. She has a YouTube channel where she pretends to be a witch, but she actually is a witch. And someone figures her out and she ends up essentially being roped into becoming a tutor for three young witches. And it, it's actually, it's just very endearing. It's a story that really plays with this idea of what does it mean to be family? What does it mean to belong somewhere? to belong to other people. So, but it also had magic in it. So it was just, it was this lighthearted, adorable little fluff thing that I was here for, uh, you know, in the midst of October of, I'm realizing that I really love uh, cozy fantasy. Uh, when I go to bookstores, my partner very much, he wants to go to the high fantasy. I'm like, where's my cozy fantasy? I'll take some cozy fantasy, please. And then uh, this is an oldie but goodie, but I found it again on Hulu the other day. Uh, the Intern, it has uh, Robert De Niro and Anna Hathaway in it. I, I watched it years ago. I decided to rewatch it. And ultimately, it's a story that juxtaposes ageism and sexism in our business world and, and challenges us to think about what does success actually look like if we can set those two issues aside. It still actually... I remember really loving the film the first time I watched it. The second time I watched it, the ending really angered me because there's this big claim in a lot of kind of chick flick films that either a woman can have a career or she can get the guy who knows kind of her two options. Yeah. And this one still boiled down to that ultimately. Like there was still ultimately her concluding decision was that she had to give up a part of her career that she loved in the name of keeping her husband who was cheating on her. And I don't love that. I don't love that. So uh, there was a spoiler there, but I don't know. I just, I enjoyed <laughs> it. I enjoyed being back in that world. I enjoyed coming back to the characters, but the ending, I just walked away and been like, really? That's how we ended this? What are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and we have... We have an upcoming conversation that we're really excited about with another film that is a classic. And I think that kind of points out there are a lot of things that are still hold very true. Like the, the best ones don't make you feel gross when you go back and watch them. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have all these questions, but there's always going to be something that changes and that society is going to have changed and our views on things going to have changed and it's trying to to figure out what the balance is for that <laughs> so right 
Well, but, right, as, as my life changes, I'm excited for that the world changes. Too. Yes. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited for future episodes. No spoilers. We'll get there when we get there. But <laughs> on that note, if you want to hear what's coming in the future, don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Lithing Podcast and subscribe to our Substack newsletter. This has been Sarah and Alicia signing off. Keep on lit thinking, people.